Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to North Lake. Glad you're here to, to worship uh, Christ with us. For those of you who are regular folk here, let me, uh, let me draw your attention to a need that our church has. A couple of weeks ago, we gave you the financial update of the church through June, and we're about $50,000 below our budget, which if that comes out of my paycheck, we're in trouble, folks. So um, that's not... Thankfully, that's not how we address that kind of thing. You know, I'm confident of God's good provision for us. We, we never lack. But he provides through you. Some of you are thinking, man, I hope people respond to that. We are the people. So let me ask you, if you would, each, each family, would you prayerfully consider if you could be more generous in the next month or so so that we could remove the lion's share of that deficit? So if, if there's something you can do, maybe you can just uh, skip a latte a week and uh, chip that into Northwake instead, or maybe you could sell that Maserati you bought early in the summer and take care of the whole enchilada. That would be great, but um, seriously, this is, a, this is a, a need that has caused us because of it. We have frozen all our ex- non-essential expenses so ministry projects are being put on hold until our finances improve. So it is affecting our ministry, and I'd, I'd like to ask you to pray about that and then give generously with me um, in the next month or so. So um, would you pray with that, about that with me just for a moment? Lord, would you direct each of us to have generous hearts? We're, we're, we still kind of have training wheels on with respect to generosity, God, and Perhaps this is your prompting for us to learn to be more gladly generous. And Lord, we pray that every, every gift that's made would be used well to expand the, the influence of the name of Jesus here in our community and around the world. So Lord, guide us and direct us. And now bring your word to us in a way that strengthens our faith, helps us follow Jesus better and love him more. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a pastor, his name is Bob Cole, and he writes a description of the age in which we live that I think will be helpful for us today. He says, we live in a day when the whole idea of spiritual discernment is minimized because spiritual truth is minimized. The slogan is, doctrine divides. Another popular mantra is, Jesus said they will know that we are his disciples by our love, not by our doctrine. And the implication, he says, that we are to set aside doctrinal views and accept anyone who simply says that he believes in Jesus. Tolerance, unity, and love are viewed as much more important than doctrinal truth, which often to us smacks of pride. And that's the culture that we live in. That's the age in which we live. Um, Peter James Lee put it this way. Peter James Lee is one of the 60 Episcopal bishops who voted to approve the appointment of Gene Robinson a number of years ago, who is an openly gay man as Bishop of New Hampshire. This is his statement. If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, Always choose heresy, Bishop Lee says. And I have to wonder if he's ever really read the book of 1 John. Um, Because listen to these verses that start our passage today. 
uh, John says, children, this is 1 John 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So there were a number of false teachers in the church who had left. And John is not wringing his hands over the fact that they left the church. Okay? He is wringing his hands because of the doctrines that they taught. He calls, he calls them antichrists, which is not a very nice thing to call someone, right? Antichrists. I can't think of a stronger way to say, don't let the door hit you on the way out than calling someone antichrist. Indeed, it seems, and we'll see today, that John believes that doctrine must divide between the truth and lie. Um, In our passage, starting with this verse, he addresses them as children, you know, they are possibly his spiritual children. It's the church that he loves. He's writing to them as believers in Christ. And he warns them that this is the last hour, he calls it. Now, obviously, that isn't to be taken literally. It's not even really chronologically, but it's more theologically. When he talks about the last hour or the the New Testament will talk about the the last days. It refers broadly to the time between Jesus' two comings, right? Those, that's what comprises the last hour. And the scriptures elsewhere warn us that these last days, this last hour, as John calls it, will be a time of heightened spiritual battle and false teaching. Peter writes about it. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of Jesus coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jude says something very similar. He says, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Professor Gary Burge describes these last days as a cascade of falsehood and evil, putting the church on the extreme defense. False Christs and false prophets are one feature of these last days. Now, John implies here that the church was aware of the teaching that at the end of time there would be a larger-than-life figure that has been called the Antichrist, right? Capital A, Antichrist, one, one personage. Um, Paul wrote of a figure like that in 2 Thessalonians when he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the Antichrist, we could say with a capital A, but John's not concerned about the Antichrist with a capital A. He's concerned about Antichrists with a little a, um, who come in the same spirit of opposition to Christ. And he says in verse 18, so now many Antichrists have come. And if, if that was true in John's day, how much truer do you think it is in our day that many opposed to Christ have come? So we should be clear. When the Bible talks about the last days or John says it, the last hour and describes satanic opposition to teaching about Jesus as the Son of God incarnate, we are living in that day. We are living in the last hour. It is describing us now. And opposition to Jesus is a mark of this last hour. Jesus spoke of it. He put it this way, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so John is writing as their pastor. He's an old pastor, older even than me. And he is writing out of concern for this little band of believers that he loves. This is a shepherd fighting for his flock. And that's why his language is so strong. Verse 19 says about these false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is one way that they have shown themselves to be these antichrists. They have left the church. Okay? It's not like if you decide to leave our church and go down to the Methodist church or go across town to the Presbyterian church. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about leaving the true church, the true teaching of Scripture, um, as we'll see, and embracing that which is not true. The teaching, the apostolic teaching about Jesus that we have in the pages of the Scripture, they have, they have departed from. Okay. But don't, don't miss this little insight in, in all of this. At one time, these teachers were in the church. They were within the church. Again, Pastor Bob Cole says that since the days of the New Testament, Satan has planted these deceivers in Christian churches where they prey on the untaught or on those who are disgruntled. These false teachers whom John labels antichrist did not carry pitchforks and wear red suits with horns and a tail or t-shirts saying, warning, I am an antichrist. Rather, they arose in the churches. Some of them may have been elders or pastors. The Apostle Paul spoke of the same phenomenon in the book of Acts. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. 
If you're old enough, you recognize the name Jim Jones. Jim Jones um, started out as a Methodist student pastor. Um, And then as a conservative fundamentalist Bible teacher in San Francisco, praised by the California state official Willie Brown and others as the man whom we all ought to be about because of really his, his excellent work. Um, in relieving racial tension among blacks and whites. After founding his own church, Jones began to feel himself above the Bible and the law, and in 1976, he would declare himself to be alternately an agnostic and an atheist in one interview, and he then isolated his followers in the jungles of Guyana, stripped of their self-worth and ability to make decisions of their own. They became like children, waiting to obey Jones' every command, and they did. 918 of them died in 1978 when Jones ordered them to drink poison-laced Kool-Aid. 304 of them were children. Jonestown, he called it. Um, He's a former Methodist pastor. What, What could this mean for us? Well, first of all, let me just say... Thanks be to God for elders who guard the teaching of the Word so rigorously. I have no doubt if I wobbled away from Scripture, started preaching out of the book of Larry, I would not make it to the back door before one of our elders grabbed me and confronted me about it. I guarantee you. In the first service, Jake Mason sits there and Stuart Bowman sits there and I wouldn't get past the front row. Would not make it. Um, So thank God, right? But this idea that this falsehood comes from within the church raises a broader reality. And that is almost surely in a room this size, there are people here this morning who don't truly believe in Jesus. Not enough to affect your life. Um, People who share our location but not our redemption. People who go through the motions but have never placed their faith in Christ. Could that be you this morning? Now, again, not that you're an antichrist, but that you're just showing up and going through the motions and not truly trusting Christ and following after him in a way that changes you. These leaders came from within the church If you skip down to verse 26, we learn something else about them. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So not only had these teachers left the church and the faith, evidently recruiting others by their deceit. So these are antichrists indeed. Back in verse 20, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. So he's saying real Christians have the Holy Spirit who leads them into truth. Into the biblical truth about who Jesus is. Not to myths and lies that are not anchored in the scripture. I first encountered this teaching when I traveled to India. It's been printed in books like this. It's called Jesus in India. And it explains how in between Jesus' childhood and his public ministry, he went to India. 
lived there, was mentored by some gurus there, evidently really liked it because after he was crucified and rose from the dead, they say he went back to India, had a family, and he's buried there. They can take you to Jesus' tomb. Um, By the way, this is exactly what John is upset about, right? It's teaching myths about Jesus that not only go beyond Scripture, but claim to supersede what Scripture teaches about Jesus. Because the Scriptures are clear. There is not a tomb on earth where you can find the bones of Jesus. Right? He is risen and He has ascended the scriptures say, bodily. The ancient creeds, which we can affirm because they support scripture, put it this way. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, in, in what follows in John, um, 1 John chapter 2, we get a sense of what these teachers were up to. But it's kind of like listening to one end of a phone conversation. You have to kind of piece together what they were saying that John is now writing against. So in chapter 1, we saw things like this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So Evidently, they were denying and excusing their sin, even claiming that they have no sin, which I can guarantee you, our leaders are not making this claim. They wouldn't make it out of an elder meeting claiming that they had no sin. We know them too well. These teachers uh, were apparently doing that. If you look at chapter 2, you pick up some more hints, things like this. Whoever says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So they were... Failing to keep Christ's commands, to walk in his ways, especially the command to love one another. Now, our passage shows us a clearer glimpse of what their actual teaching was. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, so they were denying that Jesus was the Christ in some way. And um, as we'll see later in John's writings, they were denying that Jesus had actually come in the flesh. Chapter 4, we'll find this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John, he's going to say something very similar. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So, 
he says, no one who denies this teaching about the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the consequence of denying Christ is that they didn't have God. If, if John printed bumper stickers, they might have looked like this. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no God. Right? And that ought to confuse the people who are listening to the, to the CD. Um, John, John would later write in 2 John, he says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Deny Christ and you lose God. And so John now teaches them and us how to safeguard our hearts and minds from this kind of deception. And, uh, and they need it. And so do we. Pastor John Piper says, what strikes me is the ease with which many people are deceived. Two things account for this, a lack of grounding in the Word of God and a lack of life in the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, when people have no theological depth and no vital experience of the Holy Spirit, they are sitting ducks for the deceiver and the Antichrist. And he says that this chapter is written to a situation like ours. And the two things John strives for is a deeper rooting in the Word of God and a deeper experience of the Spirit of God. The Word and the Spirit are our only hope for stability in a world filled with Antichrist. And they go together inseparably. inseparably. These two safeguards that he's going to write about are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So look at verse 24 with me. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him, that is the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Okay, abide in Christ. Now, he says you need to abide in what you have heard from the beginning. And that's a reference, it seems, to the teaching of the apostles, which is the teaching that you have in your Bibles. The apostolic teaching of the New Testament. That's the truth about who Jesus is. It's interesting. Scotland Yard did a private exhibition recently of forged paintings. All forgeries. And uh, they invited art dealers in. And the objective was to send a warning to their select audience about the sale of forgeries. Because some experts estimate that in art world, 40% of paintings are forgeries. 40, 40%. Makes you want to rust out, uh, rush out and invest in art, doesn't it? 40%. And the documentation doesn't help because they forged the documentation to go with the forged painting. There's a lady there. Um, her name was Fiona Ford. 
She's with the Association of Arts and Antiques Dealers. She said the level of skill displayed by the forgers was terrifying. She added, if every dealer saw this exhibition, it would further impress on them how careful they have to be. Now, back in 2007, there was a guy, his name was Sean Greenhog. And this guy was arrested um, for art forgery after 28 years of creating and selling forgeries to art dealers. Finally, the British Museum caught him. And they interviewed him about his experiences as a forger and asked his advice on how to avoid investing in a fake. It's interesting. One of the things he said was, in his own work, he would always put in what he called a tell. Okay. Something that would alert an expert to its status as a fake. This was his way of testing his own talents as a forger. And he says, not all forgers are that skilled, and so the tells are often unintentional. Now, the tell that John is alerting us to in terms of teaching is this. Beware of new ideas that go beyond Scripture. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What you have heard from the beginning is the teaching of the apostles, which we have written down in our Bibles. That is the test of our doctrine. Okay? It's not untethered. It has to be compared to what the Bible teaches. So there's a new religion. It was invented in Massachusetts by, of all things, a psychologist who has uh, it's been gaining in popularity over recent years it's called yoism yoism and yoism is based on what they call the open source principle you're familiar with the open source principle if you've ever used wikipedia basically any fool can write anything they want and call it true Right? It's an open source. Anybody can write. That's why teachers used to not let you cite Wikipedia as a source. Okay? Well, yoism, anybody can write in and express doctrine or truth about what they think is true. So any fool can write and contribute to yoism. Um, it operates and involves over the internet, has numerous contributors. Um, Dan Kriegman, who founded yoism in 1994, said he did so because he wanted to make religion open to change and responsive to the wisdom of people everywhere. He says, I don't think anyone has ever complained about something that didn't lead to some revision or clarification in the book of Yo. Evidently, there are scriptures, the book of Yo. And then he says, every aware, conscience, sentient spirit is divine and has direct access to truth. Open source theology embodies that. There is no authority. Okay? There is no authority in yoism. See, we don't do open source theology. We don't do theology by democracy, by vote. Okay? We do biblically anchored, discerned theology. Our theology is tested by the scriptures. Pastor John Piper wisely says so the work of the Holy Spirit is not to take us beyond the Scriptures. It is to help us accept and abide in that teaching. 
It helps us grow in our understanding of that teaching. It strengthens our power to practice that teaching. It increases our confidence in the truth of that teaching, but it does not change the teaching. And then in verse 25, he says, this is the promise that Jesus made to us, eternal life. See, eternal life is at stake with this teaching. Only the historically true, only the biblical Jesus can deliver on this promise of eternal life. He says it again in chapter 5. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son, nowhere else. So back in verse 26, the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, the Holy Spirit, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him, abide in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit teaches. So the Holy Spirit, who indwells all true believers, in Jesus, leads us into truth, especially the truth about Jesus. And as a result, John says, they need no other teacher. Now, this is, a really, this is really bad news for seminary professors because we need no other teachers. We're going to have to shut down Southeastern. I'm going to have to find a new job because you don't need any other teachers. Well, maybe that's not exactly what John means by that. Okay? Because Paul calls himself, what, a teacher. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, essentially, I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So I think what he's targeting here is that because of the, the teaching of the apostles that the Holy Spirit affirms and applies to our lives, we don't need any other teachers Um, It's a reference to those false teachers. Professor Colin Cruz says, Because the anointing remains in them, the Holy Spirit, the author says, You do not need anyone to teach you. And the primary allusion here is to those who left the church who wanted to lead the readers astray. The reference to knowing everything here needs to be understood in the context where the subject under discussion is the denial that Jesus is the Christ. God's Son come in the flesh. Nothing the readers need to know about these matters has to be learned from those false teachers who left. Everything they need to know is taught to them by the anointing of the Holy Spirit they have received. So he's not saying, uh, kids, you don't have to go to school because you don't need any other teachers, right? You don't need anybody to teach you math or anything like that. He's saying, concerning these matters that have been taught by the apostles, the Holy Spirit teaches you those things in a way that you don't have to go beyond them. And now, verse 28 says, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We must abide in Jesus, in the truth about him. That's the place of safekeeping from all the craziness that abounds in this time that they're calling the last hour or the last days. Okay? If we abide in Jesus and his teaching We're kept safe. And he's coming back, which is what Jesus taught, right? He's teaching that he'll come back. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming, coming back at an hour you do not expect. And when he does return, people are going to respond in one of two ways. They will, John says, respond with confidence 
or they will shrink back in shame. That's based on whether or not we are abiding in Jesus and His Word. Okay? To abide, to remain, to live by His Word in fellowship with Jesus. One writer described abiding this way, abiding in Christ and His Word this way. You are persuaded of its truth, the truth of Jesus' teaching. You are attracted to its beauty. You treasure its value. You trust in its grace and power. You read it. You meditate on it. You follow it. You hope in it. That's abiding. Could that be said of you? Would it be fair if someone said, you abide in Christ and his teaching? Is that true of you? Does that describe you? See, this is so very, very important because there truly are deceivers out there, antichrists, if you will, as John uses the word, that would lead people away from Christ. And they're good at it. Watch, watch this little one-minute video. I thank God for guiding me for 40 years absent my teacher so my next journey will have to answer the question I'm going to say it I know that my redeemer lives I know, I'm not guessing that my Jesus is alive. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and because he lives, I know that I too will pass through the portal of death, yet death will not afflict me. So I say to the devil, I know I gotta pay a price for what I've been teaching all these years. You can have the money, you can have the clothes, you can have the suit, you can have the house, but me, you can't have. All right, what do you think of that? You know who that guy is? It's Louis Farrakhan. He's the leader of the nation of Islam. So what's going on here? He, in a Christian church, is declaring that my Redeemer liveth and that I'm going to have to pay a price for all these things that I've taught in the past. Is he repenting? And becoming a follower of Jesus? What do, what, what do we make of this? I mean, it's sure what it sounds like, isn't it? Um, there are some urban Christian apologists who specialize in those who prey on Christians, especially in the African-American community in our inner cities. One of them is a fellow named Damon Richardson. He was born and raised in the nation of Islam until he found Jesus the Christian Jesus, at age 16. And he, this video has gone viral. 
on the internet, and he says of it, he says, when Farrakhan says, I know that my Redeemer lives, this is a reference to the fact that he believes that Elijah Muhammad, the founder of their faith, while physically absent, is physically alive. Richardson said, and when Farrakhan says, I'm, I know I'm going to have to pay a price for what I've been teaching all these years, this is not a denouncing of his teaching. This is an affirmation that he believes that he has been, what he's been teaching is right, Richardson said. The price is death, imprisonment, or some sort of persecution for exposing the identity of the devil who the nation of Islam teaches is the white man. Pastor Ernest Leo Grant, who also writes and thinks about these things, says, It is definitely a deceptive means that the nation of Islam will use to lure unsuspecting Christians. Grant, who leads a church in New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey, says, He lists the nation of Islam as one of the top sects offering urban African Americans an alternative to Christianity. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And some of you do not know the gospel of Jesus, his teachings, and his life well enough to tell the difference. You're vulnerable. Because you simply have not and are not abiding in his word in a way that safeguards you. And so as your pastor, I'm pleading with you, don't live off somebody else's faith. Make it so that you, it can be said of you, that you abide in the teachings of Jesus and with Jesus. You abide in him. You may need a gospel tune-up. You may need to go back to one of the four biographies of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you need to read them again. Meditate on them every day. Take a small section, a chapter or smaller. Pick one of those biographies. You could read John, for instance, because it connects well to the first John that we're reading about. And read a chapter or less a day and just ask two questions. What do I learn about Jesus? And what does it mean for me to follow him today? Abide in his word. Treasure his word. Sacrifice time to be in his word. Trust his word. Follow his word. Abide, read, and abide in Jesus and his word. It is my practice to close my sermons with prayer, and I'd like to do that in a different way today. Colin Watson, who plays guitar on our worship team, is here, and he's going to close with a prayer in the form of a spoken word piece that he's written out of the teaching largely of, of the first chapter of John and, the, and first John. So listen to the words of, of his prayer as he offers it, and you may find that it resonates with your own prayer as we close What was from the beginning, before that which was before creation was called anything, 
before there was even a name for nothing, God was and is will be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune majesty, divinely dancing in love, where time has no meaning, then suddenly creating the nothing and the something and the everything in between what was from the beginning. When he spoke the word, when we have heard, when he spoke in that garden, rumbling, thunder on the mountaintop, mysterious, whispering in the cool breeze, when that word breathed, the same dust he had created to abide with our rebellious race, and that same dust hung him on a tree between the heavens above and the world beneath, and between breaths of blood we heard love speak, and it sounded like mercy. When the father propositioned to adopt our dysfunctional family, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and I interrupt, having no desire to make God a liar, but if his love is in me, it seems as distant as the expanse between his divinity and my depravity. This life is a love letter to everything worldly. These mendacious eyes of mine fall for every lie they see. This body is aching for every kind of adultery. And I can taste the pride on my tongue as I speak. It's not that I don't want to be his son. It's just that sometimes this world is so covered in shadows. I cannot see two feet in front of me. And I'm worried if the light shines too brightly. I might find cloven footprints following father. Does your love really drive out fear? Or will this fear keep driving me further away? Will you remain can you abide with me and I with thee what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He did not merely pretend to wear a body. The word was clothed in humanity, intimately aware of our every failing, yet in the face of that triad of temptation stood strong. So, Jesus, would you stand for me? Would you advocate in spite of this heart-sized idol factory if it keeps condemning with every beat? Will you keep calling me? I have this longing for eternity that the present fading realities fail to meet, but I know your love is more real than the nothing and the something and the everything in between. So please, abide with me. Hide me so deep in your love that I cannot escape. Assure me that I am your beloved. If only... By grace. Yet, in this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son in our place.
Would you stand? Heaven's throne, this earth. 